All right, so this morning we are in Lesson 17 of uh, our study on the Holy Spirit. We're in specifically Chapter 9 of Sinclair Ferguson's book. Uh, And this chapter that we're going to be focusing this week and next week is the Spirit and the Body. And again, this has been adapted for Sunday school purposes, but really more or less, you know, utilizing quotes from Sinclair Ferguson or building off a lot of material from that book, which has been super, super helpful. So what I wanted to do, um, I I found a couple parts of our confession particularly helpful as we get into this. Could I have two volunteers? So someone to read uh, from our Confession of Faith, uh, the Second London Confession, uh, chapter 26, paragraph 1, where it says the Catholic or Universal Church. Would someone be willing to read? All right, Matt. And then would someone be willing to read paragraph 5, where it says, in the execution of this power? Could I get a volunteer to read? Um, Right there on the handout. Yeah, Arnie? All right, perfect. Fantastic. All right, yeah, go ahead, Matt, and then we can do Arnie. All right, excellent. So I think that's a really succinct way of what we're about to get into, which is thinking about the body of Christ as it relates to the Spirit of God and, 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 the, and the work that takes place there. So it's a really helpful, succinct way um, to talk about the universal church, right? All being gathered under one, uh, under, under Christ's headship, being his body. All right, and then Arnie, uh, can you get paragraph five from our confession? Excellent. So in, in both of these, we see how the spirit is tied in. And like in paragraph five, where it talks about not only are we uh, brought in through the spirit to that universal church, but that the spirit also then with the way that gets reflected is by particular churches, right? Individual local churches that we then uh, through the spirit gather and the do like it says uh, the due performance of that public worship which he requires of his churches in the world. So I think that's a helpful subject because really the next four weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. So I got the next two weeks. We're really going to focus in on the body of Christ and then thinking about um, uh, what that looks like um, uh, in regards to um, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism, which will be next week, and how that relates to the Spirit. And then the following two weeks, we're going to think about the body Uh, But in particular, how the spirit gives spiritual gifts, like it says, for mutual edification. So that way the body is being built up together um, in in each of its local assemblies. So, So as we get started, so Ferguson gives a helpful illustration of the ministry of the spirit, and he relates it to like climbing a mountain. Now, I am not a mountain climber. 
and I hate heights. So uh, bear with me as I try to explain something that I will never experience. Um, so, but you're climbing a mountain, right? And when you're climbing a mountain, you're looking vertically, and so all you see is the peak that's ahead, right? The, the mountain peak that's ahead. And you're thinking that's the summit, right? We're going to get there, and then that's it. But you get to this mountain peak only to realize you're not fully there, right? Because then there's another mountain peak behind it, but you couldn't see it because all you could see, right, was the mountain peak that you were, that you were uh, climbing towards, right? And so in the same way, we've spent a number of weeks glorying in the spirit and the work he does to individuals, right? We really have, right? We've, we've thought about this in so many ways, union with Christ, sanctification, the way it relates to all these aspects of salvation, glorying in the work of the spirit and this work that he does in glorifying Christ uh, in, in this way. But that's not the summit, right? Because the Spirit doesn't just do an individual work, right? But there's even more than that, because the Spirit also does a corporate work, something that is plural, right? It is a group that he also does, a collective work, if you will. And so... Really, the next four weeks, we're just going to glory in this, right? And just really help get our minds around some of these realities of what the Spirit does in building the church of the risen Christ. And then to really kind of set the stage, because we're really, this is like the, the last six weeks, right? We're like in the home stretch, right? And then the last two weeks, we're going to look at how it's the Spirit of Christ who brings all things to consummation or completion, right? So that'll, and that's what really we're, we're going to end, which is just an awesome reality when we think of the new creation in all of its fullness and how that relates to the Spirit of God. All right, so turn with me to a familiar text in Matthew 16, 18. It's one that we've gone to several times, but it's a helpful place for us to start because it reminds us of this corporate reality that we're, that we're talking about. So in Matthew 16, um, and let's take a look, and we're just going to read verse 18. Again, a, a common text that we've read a couple of times. If I can just have a volunteer when you get there, just go ahead and read verse 18. Good. Right, right. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against thee. Excellent. So notice with me two things. One, Jesus builds his church. And two, not even Satan or the most defensive demonic barriers can stop Christ from building his kingdom of grace. But I want to focus on these two little words, like it says in the text, my church. Christ is not building up individual Christians only, but he is building them up in community, in a gathered assembly in his church. And this collective idea is parsed throughout the New Testament with several metaphors. And Ferguson gives a couple that are really helpful. So we think of like in John 10, Jesus is the great shepherd and we are what? The sheep of his pasture, right? So this collective idea, one shepherd and then this collective body of sheep. Or we think of in John 15, Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches, right? We're all connected to this one in Christ. Or in Ephesians 2, we are the temple of God's dwelling 
by the Spirit, right? So we're all together. Or like uh, 1 Peter 2 says, that we are collectively, we're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house or temple, right? So we see this collective idea, even these other metaphors, just bringing out this collectiveness, this plurality that we find in one body. And I like how Ferguson captures this when he says, hence the exhortations or the, the, the encouraging commands of the New Testament, while intended to be taken to heart individually by individuals, are generally expressed in the plural to the whole church. The Spirit does not isolate individuals, but creates a new community, right? So we apply the Scripture individually, but when we look at a lot of the Bible, right, when we look at a lot of the New Testament, it's written to churches, right, that we then apply individually to ourselves. And this image really comes forward in uh, in this text that we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time in, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn with me there. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 12 and 13. Again, another one of those classic texts dealing with spiritual gifts and what is at play when we think about the one body of Christ and the diversity of gifts and uh, being members and, and, and things of that nature. Paul really brings these out. If I can have a volunteer read verses 12 and 13, when you get there, just go ahead and read. All right, awesome. So to quote Ferguson, this is really going to, like, this is what we're going to spend our time thinking about uh, for, for, for Sunday school this morning. So to quote Ferguson, this is how it sets up. Here, entrance into the body of Christ, constituted as it is of many parts, is affected by spirit baptism. Two questions immediately arise. One, what does Paul mean when he speaks about the church as the body of Christ, so that's number one. And number two, how is the spirit involved in baptism into this body? So what does Paul mean by the body of Christ? And then how is the spirit involved in baptism into this body? So on your notes, the first question is going to be answered under the section, the body of Christ. Paul's use of the term head and body is used figuratively, where we can detect uh, a couple of different senses. Now, what I want to do is ask a question that's not rhetorical, so I'm looking for responses. What are some texts, in addition to 1 Corinthians 12, that come to mind that utilize this body metaphor and discuss things like the church as the body of Christ? What are some texts that maybe come to mind or that you... Um, that you, like, oh yeah, you know, there's a text that talks about this. What, what are some of those texts that you could, let, let, let's maybe think together. What would be some of those texts where it refers to the body of Christ um, or using this body imagery? What comes to mind? Well, I, I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 where the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yep. Say the body of Christ, but 
Yes. So there's there's so yeah. In First Corinthians six, the um the it's emphasizing um uh the individuals being the temple, but then it's also true that collectively we together are the temple and the body. So I think I think there's definitely yep yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yes because that's a part of the whole um temple or spe- special dwelling of God by the Spirit. Yep, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so Ephesians 4, where it's talking about the building up, right? There's like one body and how um, uh, Christ has given gifts to the church for that building up of the body. So that way they're being edified together. Excellent. Yep. Yes, yes, excellent, right? And then, and then, and then Paul says... Um, and this is a great mystery, but I refer to Christ and the church, right? And, and it's talking about the whole idea of headship and body and then talking about husband and wife. Excellent, right? And then, and then how that relates to Christ and his church, his body. Yep. Excellent. Romans 12. Yeah. Yeah, where it talks about being uh, many members but one body. Yep, excellent. So we see that this is, this is not like a, a one-time-off use, right? That the body is used in several of these texts. And I think it's good for us when we ask a question, well, hey, in this text, uh, in, in um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, what does Paul mean when he talks about being members of the body, right? Um, uh, uh, and not only would we look at this text, we would then look at other scriptures. Right? We, would, we would let all these things come as, a, as appropriate Bible study to, 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 bear, to bear on the text. And actually, we're going to do that for, for our second question, because I, uh, I, I want us to work through that together. So I think mean, that's really helpful. So I want us to look at three passages in particular um, that, that, help, that, that are going to help us put more definition, more meat on the bones, if you will, when we think about what is the body of Christ. So um, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> So actually, can I get someone for Colossians 1.18? Who's willing to get Colossians 1.18 for me? All right, Anthony, and then uh, Ephesians 1.22. All right, Ron, and then uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. All right, Matt. All right, so let's start with Colossians 1.18. All right, excellent, excellent. So we see that he's the head of the body, right? And then, and then which is describing, which is the church. Uh, in Ephesians 1, uh, 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. All right, so notice this, right? Notice this emphasis with prepositions. Does it say that he is head over the church in this text? No, he's saying he is head over all things and then preposition to the church, right? So there's a sense in which Christ is head over the entire universe and everything with it, right? Um, All right, and now uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. All right, excellent. So when we think about the body imagery, 
there's, there's going to be tied in this idea of head, right? And, and that's going to be a part of how we help define body as it relates to, right, that missing element, right, which is, which is the head. So F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a commentator, I found uh, what he said really helpful. So uh, bear with me as, as, as we work through this together. He captures this well when he says, The word head is used in a variety of figurative senses. Where it is used in relation to body, one naturally thinks of the organic connection of head and body. But even here, he's referring to Colossians 1, uh, it is relevant to bear in mind special senses given to the word head in Paul's writing. Outstanding among these special senses is that found in 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is what we just read, where Paul teaches that the head of every man is Christ, woman's head is man, and Christ's head is God. In these three clauses, head is best understood as source or origin. The statement that woman's head is man, right, this is, this is how he's building it, the statement that woman's head is man being a reference to the formation of Eve from Adam's side in Genesis Two, right? So where, where did woman come from? She came from man, right? And so in that sense, man is head of the woman. In our present text, Colossians 1.18, where Christ is said to be the head of the body, the church, there is over and above the obvious organic relationship of body and head, right? Just kind of being one together. We think organic, think like organism, right? It's all living. Um, uh, over and above that, the thought that Christ is the source of the church's life, and probably also, with his other figurative sense of head, the thought is that he is the church's Lord. So we see this idea that Christ is the source of the church's life, and Christ is the church's Lord or ruler. So far as the organic relationship is concerned, again, think organic, think like living matter, right? This living idea, this, this, this vitality. Christ and his people are viewed together as a living entity. Christ, and I love this, this is really help, helpful. Christ is the head supplying life and exercising control and direction. His people are his body, individually his limbs and organs, under his control obeying his direction, performing his work. And the life which animates the whole is his risen life, which he's given to share with his people. Now, I know that was quite a bit, right? But I think that's helpful when we think about these figurative senses, when we think about um, Paul talking about the body of Christ, right? And then we think about this concept of head. And when we went over that text uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, this is just like a quick like pause, right, just to clarify. When we went over that text um, regarding the head of Christ as God, um, I found, so John Gill, so he's a particular Baptist from several, several centuries ago. I found his comments helpful when, when he talked about 1 Corinthians 11.3, where it says, the head of Christ is God. And just wanted to make some clarifying notes so we don't get ourselves into theological trouble. He says that when we say the head of Christ is God, it is not as to Christ's divine nature, for in respect to his divine nature, the Father and the Son are one. Nor is his Father the head of him in that sense, right? In, in, in reference to his divinity or Jesus being the Son of God, God the Son. 
but as to his human nature, so that God is the head of Christ, as he is man and mediator, and as such only. So just wanting to help, I think that's a helpful clarification when we think about um, uh, that reference uh, from 1 Corinthians 11.3. So not to distract us too much, bring us back into that head and the one body of Christ. I want us to think about these three texts we looked at. Ephesians 1, right, where Christ is head of the universe to the church. And then Colossians 1, Christ is head of the church, his body. And then 1 Corinthians 11.3, where we tie in these idea of head and body being source and the idea of uh, uh, rule, um, rule. So Ferguson, he, he says this well, where he says, just as Christ is head over the cosmos, right, in Ephesians 1.22, and directs it according to his providential purposes, right? Providence, God directing all things in history for the glory of his name. So he is, this is Christ, head over the church in Colossians 1.18, and directs it according to the principles of his kingdom, right? And, and so we see this idea of this relational connotation. Christ is the Lord and ruler of both the cosmos and the church. He's He's Lord and ruler of both. And individuals are brought into the church, which is the body of Christ, that is the fellowship of those, because being united to Christ by God's grace and through faith, we are bonded inextricably together in the one bundle of life. And I like, I like what he says here at this last part. They, right, each, each individual, belong to one another... Because they belong to Christ, their Lord and head. So I have an obligation to each of you because I have a relation to Christ just like all of you have a relation to Christ, right? And in that sense, we are that one body. So, and all this happens through spirit baptism, spirit baptism, where we are baptized into the body of Christ. So we see this idea of Jesus being head of the body as source, right? Where the church comes from, it's life-sustaining power. And then also as ruler, that he's over the church. And, and, and really, this is just another picture with what we've talked about previously, this idea of union with Christ. And we're going to see that as we, we go farther in the, the, um, uh, on, on a couple different levels. So, so question. <clears throat> Again, not a rhetorical one. So he's going to clarify. What do you think are some implications of this idea of Christ as head of the church? What, what, do you, what do you think are things that kind of come as a result of this, that Christ is head of the church? What are some of those prerogatives that Christ has over his church? What are some of the implications? Let's think about this. Yeah, Anthony. No, you know, we have to keep his commandments if we are part of his church. Yes. Um, we have to, you know, to, to love him and follow his commandments. Uh, love one another. Yes. You know, like you were saying, we have to. We have an obligation to each other, bear each other's burdens. Yes. Show love to one another. No, that's excellent because you, you think about that idea that 
Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord of the church, which means we as his people, his body, are obligated. We are put under, right, to, to submit to him as Lord, as ruler, right? And, and, he, and, he, and he and he alone, right, has, uh, can put those obligations on men because he's God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? And then, and then the implications for one another, like, you, you think about that text with um, Saul, right, when he became Paul. When, when uh, the Lord Jesus is like, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, what do you mean? I'm just killing Christians, right? Yeah. It's like, no, that, that, that's persecuting Christ, right? Because, because of that union that Christ has with his body. Yeah, absolutely. So then there's obligations that we have in fulfillment to Christ to one another. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Christ alone can require that. Yeah, what else? What, what, are, what are some other implications? Think of that idea of source or life. We think of that idea of rule, that Christ is head of the church. Yeah. Well, um, one way the church is described is like um, the bride of Christ as the body of Christ. And, well, marriage is written all over the Bible. So he's the head of the marriage. He's the head of our family. And, I mean can't pull out any scripture but like that's one lesson i've been learning over the past year yeah and like that's it it's like that like he's that's it yeah no 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 that that's good absolutely absolutely right and uh yeah to use the marriage analogy right where christ is the one who is he provides the guidance the direction the vision the mission of the church right that's christ he's laying that out and yeah and, and and he is the one and again he alone can provide that to the church. We're not to take the cues from other social institutions. It is Christ's church, and Christ will build his church his way, right, with his people, right? And, and so, again, all of that's just going to come back to this idea of Christ being head of the body. So, no, I think that's really good. All right, any, any questions or comments so far before we go into spirit baptism? How does the spirit relate to this corporate body of Christ, right, in this, in this idea. So any questions or comments? All right, sounds good. Let's do it. All right, so on your notes, and you will see here, we've got a couple of scripture texts that we're going to be hitting. So we're, we're going to talk about baptism with the Spirit, and we're answering that second question that we brought up earlier. How is the Spirit involved in baptism into this body. And I'll just read again that text from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13. And I'm going to emphasize that part with the Spirit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. See that emphasis. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I think this text is very helpful in putting this picture together. <clears throat> but this phrase, baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit, where it says, for in one spirit we were all baptized, it's used seven times in the New Testament. And this use in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen is a little ambiguous. But one of my thoughts was instead of um, uh, uh, brushing over this, what I wanted to do was take a minute and slow down. I wanted us to, to learn how do we study our Bible when we come across a text 
that seems to not jive with other texts, right? And, and how, do we, how do we work that out together, right? What's an appropriate way for us to do that? So what I want to do is just at least present the problem, if you will, right? Even though it's not really a problem, right, in, in, in that other sense, but um, one that we're going to tackle. So in the text, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I, I apologize. We should all just look at that together in our Bible. In, in, in verse 13, where it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized. And it, so this phrase could be grammatically taken as someone who baptized you with or in the Holy Spirit, right? So someone does the baptizing, right? And, and it's with or in the Holy Spirit, uh, where, the Spirit where the Spirit is the medium or mode, or, right, and this is the other way that grammatically it could be taken in this text, it could be taken as the Holy Spirit as the one who baptizes you as the agent, right? He's the one who baptizes. Now, um, what I wanted to do was real quick, I thought this was just really helpful from our confession. In uh, paragraph 9 of chapter 1 uh, on, on, the, on the Holy Scripture, and I want to just read it real quick. Because I thought this was just a helpful reminder for us. How do we work through when we come across a more challenging part of Scripture where it might not necessarily immediately align with, um, with other texts? So, I'll, I'll, I'll read from our confession. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which are not many but one, and this is, this is where I want to focus in, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And this is what uh, has been um, <clears throat> called uh, the analogy of Scripture, right? Where we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We work, we work all that together. So, like I said earlier, there's seven texts in the New Testament. And what I've done, I've listed them for you. You've got a little handout, a little gift. And that's going to help us because... In six of those seven senses, it's really clear who does the baptizing. That the baptizing is Christ, and the medium or mode is the Holy Spirit. But I want us to work through this together, right? And just, just to show, okay, yes, this is, this is how we, when we take an, a more ambiguous text, or something that could go either way grammatically, that's the first part of Bible study, and not the last. <clears throat> so, what I'm going to do is I need... Um, six volunteers, because we're just gonna we're just gonna read these six verses one after the other. So who is willing to take Matthew three eleven? All right, and then Mark one eight. All right, all right. Uh, Luke three sixteen. All right, John one thirty three. Acts one five. All right, John. All right, Acts 11.16, last one. All right, excellent. All right, uh, Matthew 3.11. Excellent. So this is John the Baptist talking about um, Jesus. So Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right, Mark 1.8. All right, excellent. All right, Luke 3.16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right, excellent. All right, John one thirty three. Excellent. And then Acts 1 5. John baptized with water, but who baptized with the Holy Spirit? Not many days from now. Alright, excellent. And then Acts eleven sixteen. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Alright, excellent. So and then and then we've already read First Corinthians twelve thirteen. So those initial um, four texts, right? This is um, John the Baptist speaking and saying, hey, it's not me. I'm not the Messiah, but the one who comes after me, right? He's the one who's going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, right? And so it's looking forward to the day of Pentecost, right? We've we've gone over Pentecost. Pentecost was uh, the coming of the Spirit, right, uh, that we read about in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts 1.5, when it says, for John baptized you with water, uh, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, right? So we were, um, we were waiting uh, for Christ, uh, for his um, ascension, right? And then when he, when he left, he was going to send the Spirit, right? And that's what that's saying. It's going to happen a couple days, a couple days from now. And then Acts 11.16 is um, uh, Peter with Cornelius and recalling what happened on the day of Pentecost, right? So we think spirit baptism, we think of what initially happened on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit because Christ was exalted. He was glorified. So, but what's the takeaway? Who is the one who was baptizing? It is Christ. Christ is the one who's baptizing. And what is he baptizing with? Right? He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit. So then, <clears throat> um, and it can be helpful to think of this. Um, we could use the analogy of baptism with water to help us understand baptism with the Spirit. Right? In the same way that we were immersed or plunged in water, right? as that is the mode of baptism, so the same way Christ immerses us or plunges us into the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, now, the difference between water and the Holy Spirit is the Holy, Holy Spirit is a person, right? Third person of the Trinity. And, now, and this is something that happens when Christ immerses us in the Spirit at conversion. And, and Pastor Des taught on this from chapter 4 uh, a, a, number, uh, a number of weeks ago, dealing with uh, spirit baptism, right? It's another way it, to say that we have received the Holy Spirit. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, just building on this, it also says at the end of verse 13, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And Paul is alluding to Jesus' words from John 7 and verses 37 to 39, where Jesus said, uh, or I'm sorry, where it says, on the last day of the feast, The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But then in verse 39 it says, Now this he said 
about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So as John Ruther, he states, As we are thus buried in baptism into the Holy Spirit, we now drink together of this water that represents, or another way we could say it, or that is represented by the Holy Spirit. The living waters of the Holy Spirit are what we drink together as one body because we have been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. We drink of one Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ who satisfies us with refreshing living water, which is himself, right? So kind of looping all the way back. So again, how does this tie in, right? So we're building on this idea of the body of Christ. How is the spirit involved? So now we see spirit baptism, something that happens um, when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we come to know the Lord. So notice also in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, where it says in the beginning that we were all baptized into one body, right? So one universal or, right, to to use the term Catholic, right, in that universal sense, that one church. Um, And what this does is this tells us that we become baptized into this one body, like Anthony said earlier, we become members of that body, members of Christ's church. So when we think one body... Of necessity, we come to think of unity, right? Unity in Christ's church. And in the same way that this applies to the invisible church, right? It also applies or should be reflected in the local church, right? Because local churches are to make up and represent the invisible church. So so we see Christ baptizes or immerses sinners with the Holy Spirit, and we are baptized into Christ and to his body. But like we said earlier, spirit baptism is really another way for us to talk about our union with Christ. And I want want us to see this. Look with me in Romans chapter 6. So again, in some sense, I feel like we hit the same, like, eight glorious texts that come to this. But really, there's, I think we look at these texts, and it's just like a different way to turn a diamond, and you see a little bit of a different, uh, uh, different prism in the picture. So in Romans 6, and we're just going to read verses 3 through 6. In Romans 6, verses 3 through 6, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right? So you see that so far in verses 3 and 4, right? Um, Baptized into Christ. uh, We were buried with him by baptism, so see that union language, how we're identified with Christ, but then it's using this baptism language, right? In verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, so we see that union language with Christ, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
And then, like it says in the beginning of verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. And then, and then it goes on. So we see this language about union or being identified with Christ. And then we also see this language about baptism. Well, how do these two relate together? Uh, they, they relate together because spirit baptism, being baptized, um, Christ baptizing you with the Holy Spirit, is being identified with Christ in conversion, and it's also baptism into his body, which is the church. So there's a lot of glorious realities, right, that are taking place when we talk about conversion and spirit baptism. This is descriptive of our conversion experience. And really, I just want to look at one more text, because this is going to help kind of situate us for what we're going to cover next week when we think about um, growth in the local church through the collective, um, uh, through the Spirit, when we think about baptism in the Lord's Supper. So, Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Right? So we see this baptism into Christ is putting on Christ, which is another, it's another metaphor that's describing our union with him, describing um, uh, what happens to us in conversion. And it says, many of you. So all that have been spirit baptized into Christ are all in union with Christ. And this is going to be an important distinction that we make when we go into next week and we talk about baptism. Why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. And this is how we're going to end this week. When we look at these baptism texts, they refer to spirit baptism, but not spirit baptism only. Because in the New Testament, it also carries the idea of what it's signified by, right? Which is water baptism. So when it talks about being baptized, we, we understand that it is spirit baptism, right? That we've been baptized into that then is to be reflected or, um, or signified by water baptism, right? So you are to look back at your baptism, right? What happened in the water, which is reflective of what happened with Christ and with you in the spirit. So in other words, people who get saved and receive the Holy Spirit also are to get water baptized. Now, next week, so what we're going to discuss is how Christ has given his church two institutional signs for their corporate and individual good, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I want to close with what Ferguson says, because, again, this is this is now now that we've kind of covered what's this body idea. How does the spirit relate? Now we're going to look at um, uh, what it means as a part of the body and then as it relates to spiritual gifts. Right. That corporate idea. So let me read Ferguson and then and then, and then we'll close. All Christians are thus baptized into one body by Christ. The Spirit is the medium of that baptism. But life in this body is governed by the means Christ establishes for his people's development and their growth. In particular, by the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is going to be covered next week, and by the ordinance of ministry. And that's what Des is going to cover the following two weeks and how the Spirit's involved in that mutual edification in the one body.
All right. Do we have any any questions or comments before before we go and uh, and, and come to a close? All right, excellent. Let's go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for this time, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for letting us get to glory in the corporate reality of the work that you are doing through the Spirit for the glory of your Son. And Lord Jesus, how it is a joy for us to be a part of this one body and how you have baptized us with the Holy Spirit into the church. We thank you for the church. We glory being members of the church and all that you have done for us through your spirit. We pray that as we're dismissed, that you would prepare our hearts, strengthen us as we gather for our corporate worship, that you would be exalted and our hearts would be filled by grace. Amen.